You know, making demands of God is not the way we approach the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Embry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, where we take you through the Bible 32 times. This is our 32nd year. Looking forward to this as we continue on today going through the Exodus. This is going to be an interesting program for the next half hour. Corey and Ryan are here, Corey. I'm going to be taking a look at the kinds of evidence we should be expecting for the Exodus event. Ryan? Well, I have a really interesting question for us today, and it's this. How could a good God, a God of peace, according to the book of Hebrews, condone and even employ warfare? All right, that's a very good question. And what are you going to be doing, Janice? Well, it's Friday, so that means I have a fun Friday wrap-up question from every chapter that we've read from Saturday all the way up to the end of the chapters today. That's a lot of chapters, that's I'll tell you. That's a lot of chapters. All right, get ready. We're going to go. Exodus 17 verses 1 through 7. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Exodus 14 through 17. What an amazing passage today as we listen to what God is talking about is the Lord among us. We hear it all the time from people who are frustrated and impatient. Is the Lord really with us or not? I mean, why won't God do miracles right now for me? But we learn from scripture that God's time does not flow like our felt needs move. In many ways, we are tempted to call on God for our felt needs rather than trusting in the Lord for his provision. You see, patience is a combination of discipline and the fruit of the Spirit because it is not an easy thing to develop on our own. In our current world, 
we are not encouraged to be patient, even though we know that patience is a good thing. We have to learn to demand that we are served right now without delay. And God is our heavenly father. He's not a customer service. God is God. And we should remember that our purpose is to serve him in the body of Christ, not the other way around. The Lord begins to teach us this difference between expecting now and accepting his provision in his time. Today, we're going to be talking about this. This is interesting. It's, is God with us or not? Is he with us? I mean, come on, say something, God. But listen carefully, because God is talking. The question is, are we listening? And we're going to be talking about that today in Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Take out your Bible guide, turn to it. And let me tell you that if you don't have a Bible guide, that's okay. You can get your seconds away. You can write to us or call us or seconds away. Go online, Bible Discovery TV, Bible Discovery TV. Click on the Bible guide and uh, it will direct you to a page where you can download it. And uh, when you download the Bible guide, let me tell you, it's a PDF file. So it's just exactly how it's printed. And uh, this is fascinating. So let's pray. Father, I... I pray today that we would hear what you're saying. Touch us so that we can understand how to read it, Lord. Uh, We're programmed so much in this world to demand, demand, demand. But Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to learn that it's not about us demanding, but it's about us listening. Help us today, Lord, right now in Jesus' name. And we said together, amen. So take your Bible guide and turn to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. Here is what the scripture says. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, which is where they were when they left Egypt, according to the command of the Lord and camped in Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? Now, notice this because we must pay attention to it. Making demands of God is not the way we serve him. Now, let me read that again. Making demands of God is not the way we serve him. Trusting in the Lord's provision is the way we see, hear, and know God. Beloved, we must see, hear, and know God. We must trust in his provision. Now, there's a critical place here where we shift our attitude. And our attitude is always what the media tells us, the internet or the radio or the magazines or whatever we do. And then there's God's way, which is very different. We need to understand that the Bible explains to us that we need to listen to God and follow his direction and his path. Very interesting. Let's go back to scripture. Exodus 17, verse 3 says, And the people thirsted there for water. And the people complained against Moses, and they said, Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? 
So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people, Lord? They are almost ready to stone me. Now that's interesting because Moses was troubled with the impatience and the doubt of the children of Israel. Now, Christians follow Christ today. Now that means we trust and set our lives to his clock. We trust and set our lives to what Jesus is doing. Not what we want him to do, but what he wants us to do. Now that's a subtle but dramatic change in our attitudes. And I want to highlight that today because that's, as in essence, what God is saying here in this particular time. And he says this a, a number of times over the next 40 years when they continue in the wilderness. That's fascinating. Now let's go on and read these. This is 5 to 7 of 17. And the Lord said to Moses, here's what God said, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. I want to show them too. Also take in your hand your rod with which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So they saw it as well. So he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? They tempted the Lord. Now, here's what we need to understand. We need to get this. The Lord still provided for the people, though they were impatient and questioning. Did you hear that? You see, we should not be in conflict with Jesus Christ, Christian, Christ-like one. He is good all of the time. And all of the time, Jesus Christ is good. We must understand that our time frame and how we see time is not how God sees time. And we should adjust. That's why we pray every day to listen to the Lord, not to tell him what we want. Lord, I want this, I want that. That's not how we pray. We pray, Lord, help me to hear you. That's a big part of our prayers. Help me to hear you and understand and, and get my clock set to your clock so I don't become like this world, demand, 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 but I become a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, somebody who hears the Lord and is patient. And Father, that's what we pray for today, that we might be able to hear you and listen to what you've said, because this is so important right here, right now, where we are with what we have, because we just demand of you. We just demand, Lord, fix it, fix it, fix it. But help us, Lord, because you're telling us to be stronger, that through your grace, we are made strong. So it's you, Lord, that we depend on. And we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that you would make yourself clear to us today. And we all said together, amen and amen. Jesus Christ spoke to us and told us not to be afraid, not to be troubled by these times. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of God's final reconciliation with the world. 
God is going to make things change in our lives, and this is very important. He has selected you and myself to live in this time, and I find that absolutely amazing. The historicity of the Exodus event as the Bible records it is a really controversial issue in today's day and age. So today, I want to take a second to take a look at the kinds of evidence that we should reasonably expect to find when it comes to the Exodus and the kinds of evidence that we should not reasonably expect to find. Take a look. The Israelite exodus from Egypt is one of the most controversial events that the Bible claims as history. Its very nature, however, means that the kind of cooperating evidence that we would expect to find for it would be itself different in nature than many other events. Not only is the claimed exodus event very ancient, but it involves a defeat and humiliation of Egypt, which is not the kind of thing we should expect to find carved on the victory monuments of the pharaohs. Beyond this, the Israelites lived nomadic lives in the wilderness for 40 years. A people group moving around does not leave the kind of material evidence that a sedentary culture does. So when establishing the historicity of the Exodus, several lines of evidence must be considered to build a case. A key line of evidence involves the importance of the Exodus as an establishing event. The entire culture of Israel revolved around it. Yearly festivals were observed because of it. Events were dated from the year of the Exodus. Even the very justification for following the law of God was that God had rescued them from Egypt. The Old Testament has well over a hundred references back to the Exodus event. Not only does the Bible tell us that it happened, but the resulting culture of Israel also points back to the Exodus as its foundational event. Another line of evidence examines the biblical account of Israel in Egypt to see if it fits what's known about Egypt of that time, or if it reflects a later or spurious reconstruction. Could the Exodus account plausibly reflect actual conditions in those areas and cultures? Turns out, yes, the biblical Exodus account contains timely Egyptian loanwords, accurately describes a new kingdom setting and beliefs. On top of this, there's archaeological and literary proof of Semitic slaves in Egypt. Along with surviving slave names, the city of Averis has been excavated, which would later be known as Ramesses. It was a Semitic city that was abandoned sometime after the reign of Amenhotep II, a candidate for the Exodus pharaoh. The Book of Deuteronomy was written in the style of a Hittite suzerain vassal treaty, meaning that the law itself was organized into a style from that period. Another line of evidence appeals to Egyptian parallels of the Exodus event. Though this area of research is highly debated, there are texts like the Admonitions of Ippur that record the sorrow of an Egyptian official over plagues afflicting Egypt. And there may be Egyptian parallels to the I Am name of God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3. Final lines of evidence have to do with Israel's emergence in Canaan. Israel left some distinctive marks on the landscape of Canaan that appear during the biblical time of the judges. Their existence on the archaeological record demonstrates that they did come from somewhere, and Egyptian documents themselves, like the Merneptah Stella, places an established Israel in Canaan by the 12th century.
So I hope you can see that by taking a look at several different strands of evidence that do exist, uh, that a very uh, good case for the exodus as a historical event can be made. And this is just, this is not all of the evidence that exists for the exodus. This is just a summary of some of it, showing you the kind of circumstantial case that needs to be made for this event. Uh, it can be quite strong. I mean, I know it's not intensely satisfying because we don't have the proverbial smoking gun, you know, where Pharaoh's like, that Moses guy, that was terrible. Uh, but the circumstantial evidence is quite good. Now, th this is interesting because you talk about circumstantial evidence and Moses and all of that. Uh, this Many people believe the Exodus happened around 1200. Mm -hmm. um, you believe 1450-ish, 1446. 1446, yeah. Um, I, as I believe. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the question is, and as we approach this, um, if a nation is defeated this way, because it was a defeat in many ways, mm -hmm. um, he thought he was God, Pharaoh did, he was not, and God proved it to him. So you don't publicize that, you don't make that a big deal, but what people look for is evidence in the culture. And uh, this gets very interesting because you can't find any. Now that's a long time ago. You can find some. But well, can't. there's there's quite a bit, and that's like when uh, the the case that can be made with the you know how the Bible incorporates Egyptian loan words, how there is evidence for entire cities of Semitic slaves living in Egypt, and then the city being abandoned after the time period of Pharaoh Menetep II, and then the sudden emergence of Israel on the scene in the land of Canaan. Like there's archaeological remains of those things. So how do we explain those things? Uh, and you. Can can explain them in many different ways, but the ancient literary evidence tells you that it was because God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. So, so there is evidence. There's there are, a lot there of is, evidence. Yes. Okay, so because I, you start the argument, we start the argument this way, and we, we say, well, there's no evidence for it, and then you just showed us there is evidence. For mm -hmm. it. So it really matters how you interpret it. And we don't know what's going to be found in the future. There are a few scholars right now who are working on, um, you know, some Egyptologists who are looking into some of these issues and some of these claims that are being made about positive evidence for the Exodus. Stay, so we'll see. Yeah, stay on this because it's going to be very good how we, uh, how we develop this. It's going to be fascinating. Okay, Ryan, go ahead. All right, well, today I really wanted to deal with a question that comes up a lot as we read the Bible, especially for skeptics and or new readers of the Bible. And that is, how could the God of the Bible, a God the Bible calls good, as well as a God of peace, condone and even employ warfare? Well, on the surface, this may sound contradictory. I mean, a God of peace at war? Well, actually, God's goodness and peace demand that he be at war, at least for now. Check it out. Both saints and cynics alike have often struggled to understand how the good God of the Bible, a God of peace, could condone warfare and even lay out specific instructions for how wars ought to be fought. Interestingly, Old Testament scholar Gleason Archer responded to this question with a question of his own. He asks, is it really a manifestation of goodness to furnish no opposition to evil? Can we say that a truly good surgeon should do nothing to cut away a cancerous tissue from his patient and simply allow him to go on suffering until he finally dies? Can we praise a police force that stands idly by and offers no resistance to the armed robber, the rapist, the arsonist, or any other criminal who preys on society? How could God be called good if he forbade his people to protect their wives from ravishment 
and strangulation by drunken marauders, or to resist invaders who've come to pick up their children and dash out their brains against the wall. It's hard to imagine how any deity could be thought good who would ordain such a policy of spiritless surrender to evil as that advocated by pacifism. Such humanitarian protests against our Creator also illustrate the sad fact that many people, including even some believers, don't really know who God is because they do not know His Word. As a result, they have created either a partially or else a totally false image of God. In an ironic twist, they have created God in their own image, and in doing so have actually broken the first two of the Ten Commandments. To be sure, He is a God of peace, as affirmed by the New Testament book of Hebrews. But the Bible also calls him most upright and holy, and as such he cannot tolerate sin. He's also called the judge of all the earth, and the lawgiver. In fact, he's even referred to as a warrior in Exodus chapter 15 verse 3. Thus his character demands that he must judge and conquer evil, for there can be no real peace in the midst of evil and suffering. In another sad twist, many believe that God is the one responsible for evil and suffering. This is the natural conclusion that flows from the popular belief that creation came about through evolutionary processes, where life arises through death. According to evolution, death, suffering, and evil have always existed. However, in direct contrast, the Bible teaches that God created everything perfect, but man rebelled against God, which brought these evils in. So God is not responsible for evil. We are. Nevertheless, God, in His grace, has been working to bring all of creation back to its original perfect state. And that's why the God of peace is at war with all evil. So notice that there are three points that we considered here. The first was, could a good God really allow evil to go unchallenged? And the simple answer to that is an obvious no. Secondly, a lot of people don't really know who God really is because they don't know His Word, the Bible. Now, we fashioned a God of our own making in our own minds, but we need to know the God of the Bible. And that's part of the reason reading and studying God's Word is so, so important. Lastly, because we live in a sin-cursed world, God must bring all evil into subjection. He is at war with evil because He's working to restore creation to its perfect state. Also very important to understand is that God is not the author of that evil. That false idea comes from an improper worldview, namely evolution. But the Bible teaches that evil entered in as a result of our disobedience to God. Nevertheless, God in His magnificent and unmatchable grace gave Himself for us in the person of Jesus Christ and offers you eternal life in a new heavens and new earth, just like it was in the beginning. So, will you accept His offer of salvation? Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth, mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Please make Him your Lord today and you too will be a part of that very glorious future. All you do is you pray and sometimes people pray by closing their eyes and locking everything else out. But uh, when you pray, you're talking to God only. You can pray anywhere you want. Uh, anytime you want. And I would encourage you to invite Jesus Christ into your heart, ask him forgiveness of your sin, and tell, ask him, Lord, teach me who you are, because I need to know you. Uh, and when you pray that way, let me tell you something, God will answer that prayer. Very good, Ryan. That's excellent. All right, we go to uh, 
Corey, because she has something she's going to tell us about this weekend. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, we started last year. Every single weekend on my YouTube channel, I would release a chapter-by-chapter -chapter recap that gets you caught back up on your reading for this week. I am continuing that that this year, except I'm also bringing my husband along for the ride. We're going to be able to get a little bit more in-depth into certain issues. For example, this weekend, I'm going to be uh, talking with him about some more potential evidence for the exodus. So if you want to check that out, the chapter-by-chapter -chapter recap, then go to my YouTube channel, Corey Babechko, and the videos are uploaded every Saturday morning. I look forward to that, and it's on our phone uh, apps as well. You can go on the phone apps, uh, Android, or uh, actually you can go to uh, Apple TV as well. We're there as well, so you can just download them however you want. Bible Discovery TV, look for it on your phone apps. Anyway, okay, Janice, we've got this question. We coming. do, we do. So, And it's from, I mean, goodness. There is so much information packed into these Old Testament chapters in Genesis and Exodus. I'm going to sit here. I'm not going to say. All right. Good. Very good. Genesis 44 through Exodus 17 is the chapters that I looked through and developed this question. When Joseph told Pharaoh that his father and brothers had come from the land of Canaan and were in the land of Goshen, how many of his brothers did Joseph take with him to meet Pharaoh? Did he take five of his brothers? Did he take eight of his brothers with him? Or did he take all of his brothers with him? So this was the first meeting with Pharaoh when he arrived. Very first presentation of his family to Pharaoh. Five, eight, or all of them? What do you think? It's not an easy uh, question. This is not a, an easy this question. This is not an easy question. Okay, this might sound crazy, but I don't think he took all of them. I don't think so either. I think we've got to go with either five or eight. Um, Everybody's checking their Bible right now. I know. Check, Everybody's guys. Check. Yeah. Your Bible. Check. I'm trying to remember. We're not allowed to right now. So. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, there's no particular significance of either number. No, not really. I'm thinking... Five. Yeah, I'm thinking five. five. I'm thinking five. We're, we're not gonna... sure, but we're going with five. All right. Well, I would think that that was a very wise and good decision because we it's it. absolutely right. <laughs> so if you at home were struggling as well and trying to do the Bible quick turning of the pages to find out, you can look in Genesis chapter 47, verse 2, where in fact Joseph took five of his brothers with him. We have a special offer for you. This is excellent. It's Signs of the Times, a collection of sermons that I've done. I've, I've recorded them specially for you. I want you to check it out right for it. You can get a hold of it because it's very interesting. And I'll talk more about that on the next program. But for the end of the program, let's pray. And let's say it this way. Say, Lord, help me to learn to trust and follow you in my life. In Jesus' name. And we prayed together. Amen.